the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. I was listening partially to a debate between two conservatives on the cancel culture earlier this morning. The springboard for the discussion was Whoopi Goldberg and her unique, really novel take on Nazism and Adolf Hitler. Before we go further, let's not forget how this discussion even came up. So many people thinking most of the scholarly work on World War II and the Holocaust had been settled enough that it didn't need Whoopi Goldberg's scholarship to supplement it. So Whoopi entered these settled waters she chose to royal in an effort to defame Christian conservatives in the South and their choosing to take a book out of an eighth grade curriculum because of objections to nudity. No one really remembers this, but that's how the discussion started. She chose not to believe their reasoning, and she was served up this questioning of motives by that other chair in philosophy and history at Yale named Joy Behar. They chose to impute motives to Southern Christians they never met, studied, or took seriously in the first place, and what they chose to impute was racism, white supremacy. Perhaps if they took the Tennessee school board at their word, none of this would have happened. What this not taking Hitler at his word. You see that, right? Hitler said he wanted to protect the master race and eliminate the inferior Jewish race, his words, his writings, his entire worldview and life. And Whoopi chose to say that's not what he meant. The Tennessee school board said they didn't want to expose eighth graders to nudity, and Joy and Whoopi chose to say they didn't mean that. Joy and Whoopi, are there two less aptly named people? Oddly, though, Whoopi gave that name to herself. Anyway, perhaps if we took people at their words and actions and didn't ascribe our prejudices to them, none of this would have happened, and Whoopi would be hosting and chairing the hosting job of The View today. But that's exactly what happened. Joy and Whoopi are prejudiced, or at least post-judiced, towards Southern Christians. They engaged in their own form of not understanding the Tennessee school board as it understood itself, just as Whoopi chose to revise Hitler in a way he would not have understood and never intended. For he was, until about three days ago, the leading example, exemplar of white supremacy. Whoopi thought she knew better and exonerated him for not being a white supremacist. All down this road we traveled because of prejudice towards mostly white Christians in Tennessee from Bihar and Goldberg. How could Whoopi and Joy understand those Tennesseans so well and so much better than they understood themselves? The same way Whoopi could understand Hitler so much better than he and his supporters and followers understood themselves. This is the project of postmodernism, to be sure but also the project of all critical theory, taking your own novel concepts of what actually happened or what people in the past actually believed and said and giving them your own meaning, 
your own gloss and understanding and giving them your own understanding as if that were the real truth. This is how you get a movement that wants to change our founding date. This is how you get a movement that thinks the Confederacy had the better argument in the 1850s and 1860s. This is how you get a movement that still uses Confederate history as the real history of our founding, all the while dismissing the actual events and actual history as represented by A, what the founders actually said and did, B, what Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party actually said and did, C, what the union actually said and did, and D, what the majority of America and Americans actually fought for and won. This is how you get the nonsense of critical theory, as you've heard me explain, in the case of what all its apologists point to, an intellectual pursuit mostly just found in law schools. Well, I've studied and listened to those lectures, and one of those founders of the critical legal theory movement, perhaps the most famous, was one Derrick Bell of Harvard. And one of his theories in pursuit of this scholarship, he spoke and wrote a lot about this, is that Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 landmark decision, had less to do with race and integration and more to do with showing the Soviets we were not racists. In other words, Professor Bell's point was that Earl Warren, Thurgood Marshall, and Felix Frankfurter, and Robert Jackson, and Hugo Black, and William O. Douglas, and others from, Supreme, from the Supreme Courts and Constitutional History's Valhalla were just wrong in what they said and what they told us. Derrick Bell knew what they didn't. The problem is there is nothing to back this up. And Bell's position and view is and would be wholly at odds with what Thurgood Marshall Earl Warren et alia thought or would have thought. Bell was, in other words, imputing to the Brown versus Board decision and authors views he held and not the views or thoughts they held. Just so, Whoopi Goldberg was doing just that with Adolf Hitler, a perfectly innocent thing to do in our modern academy and postmodern world where critical theory trumps actual events, actual theory, actual history, actual thoughts, or what we used to just call facts. It may be good for intentions if you're trying to impose a left-wing gloss on making America look bad. It may be good for earning a living. It may be good for fame. But it's not true and it's not accurate. Just look how here and there, as discovered, the folks over at the 1619 Project changed things on their website in the dark of night when called out on actual inaccuracies in history from those who kind of know and knew better. The word for all this is a lie. People would rather believe a lie than the truth if it serves their ideological agenda, Whoopi being one of them. And perhaps in that sense, she understood Hitler so well, she engaged in his view of propaganda without even realizing it. People rather believing a convenient lie than the actual truth when it serves their interests. This, of course, is how one gets to the phrase, my truth. It's a wholly modern invention, postmodern invention, that does two things immediately when someone says it. A, it tells you there is actually another truth, otherwise why put the word my there? And B, makes whatever you think or feel more accurate than demonstrable fact. In other words, it's, as I say, an invention. 
Maybe if we took people seriously when they said things and take them at their word rather than telling the world we should not do that, but we should take whoever comes later with their catalog of pretenses and ideologies as their word, maybe if we didn't do that, we would not have history wars and a lot less misunderstandings, including a lot less bigotry. For after all, when you tell an audience the Southern Christians in Tennessee were not being sincere and were engaging in an act of bigotry, you are doing so in absence of all evidence by engaging in an act of bigotry, prejudice. And given the races and religions involved here, there's no better word for what Whoopi Goldberg did with Joy Bihar. So it turns out why, after all, if racism and bigotry are the greatest evils of our age, we must purge because racism and bigotry, prejudice, are wrongs in and of themselves. There are no greater racists and bigots than the modern leftists we live among who labor all they can to distort fact and history in order to justify themselves and their views. Until yesterday, we referred to fact and history in order to inform our views. If you find a great war taking place where you simply cannot understand where the left is coming from, you're not alone. They come from a position of invention. They come to their views having invented their own facts and history as it works best for them to justify themselves. You know what you call that? The will to power, as Nietzsche put it, where individual existence and power replaces morality and immorality as the ability to discover truth and falsehood. Or – as Hitler's favorite propaganda film was titled, The Triumph of the Will. As for me, and I hope as for the survival of this country in the West, I think we should stick to self-evident truths, natural right, natural law, and actual history. Fact. Individuals becoming laws unto themselves without reason and based only on appetite or will and thus prejudice based on distortion and revisionism are anarchist mobs at best. So whatever becomes of Whoopi, I don't know. But if she says someday that what was done to her wasn't right, why all we have to say is, hey, kiddo, that's not my truth, after all. Where do you get your definition of what's right? And when she gives an answer to play by her rules, all we have to do is ignore her and impute to her what we think she thinks or should think rather than what she tells us she thinks. That, after all, is the new rule she and her entire cadre of revisionist leftists have instructed us with and are trying to impose on our children in our schools plays by that same rule. It's intellectual and moral anarchy, depriving anyone of ever denouncing something as wrong ever again and that denunciation carrying with it any moral weight at all. Now, Having delivered this world to us, the left can really never tell us why anything is ever wrong. It's merely based on their inventions and appetites and their truth, their say-so. A triumph of the will, we should do everything we can to defeat, lest, <coughs> ahem, man commit more inhumanity toward man. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back.
All right, new rule. Ready for the new rule? Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show live from the Guns Etc. Studios. Bill, Joni, out. Joni Mitchell is out. Was that Judy Collins? Never mind. All good. <laughs> Reverse that. As we were. Everyone back to their seats. Everything fine. My bad. Oh, boy. I usually don't make too many. That's my second musical error in how many years of broadcasting? 17, I think. Huh? What was my first? You, you may recall what my first was. Confusing. No, music error. Music error. Confu- yeah, that, you're never going to let that one go. <laughs> I know that one, yeah. No, um, confusing talking heads and simple minds. Yeah, I think it is understandable. But as long as we're on college, did we want to talk about the Washington Commanders for just half a moment? Panned on social media. Um, let me go to our listener, Charles, who wrote, Washington's NFL team is now known as the Commanders. The new name unveiled, unveiled Wednesday comes 18 months. They took 18 months coming up with this. <laughs> Couldn't we have done better in like a day? Anyway, committees were put together. Memos were written. Meetings were held. Zoom conferences were scheduled and rescheduled. The new name unveiled Wednesday comes 18 months after the once-storied franchise dropped its old moniker following decades of criticism that it was offensive to Native Americans and under fresh pressure from sponsors. The organization committed to avoiding Native American imagery in its rebrand after being called the Washington football team the past two seasons. That's the Western Journal. Charles writes, apparently the progressives' desire to get rid of Indians is actually mentioned in this report. Quote, committed to avoiding Native American imagery, close quote. Now, I know why my idea of the Washington Code Talkers would not fly. When Mia, the Indian maiden, was removed from her spot on the banks of a Minnesota lake on the food brand Lando Lakes, the joke was actually accurate. Keep the land, get rid of the Indian. Sadly, many polls I heard about claimed that a majority percentage of Native Americans didn't consider these Indian names offensive, and many actually liked the symbols. Mostly, it is liberal leftist progressives with a need to feel good who couldn't bear the names representing Native Americans. You know what is worse than insulting a group? Ignoring a group. It is sad that Native Americans, Wetzel and Chief Two Guns, White Calf, with their imagery represented by the NFL Redskins and Cleveland Indians baseball player and reasons for their names, Indians Alex Socalixis had to be thrown on the trash heap of politically incorrect historic icons. Now everybody is a guardian or a commander. I guess it isn't as bad as Stanford's Indian being replaced with a tree. Please don't get upset with me if I don't share the thrill of these new names. And at some point, I'll insert, I suppose we might expect those speaking up on behalf of trees to wonder about the tree equity for the tree Stanford chose. American culture, Charles concludes, used to be symbolized by the various groups that made up the folklore an identity of our country. Indians were part of that. Now I guess we are going to be no different than the universal cartoon that has those generic little yellow figures called minions. This is what we have 
become, at least to the progressives. We are all just minions in a world with no characters, no individuality, and no place to stand out. That is the most despicable of things. Yeah, I guess it's not, um, it's not going well. Uh, they're getting panned according to this Fox News report. This isn't the biggest issue to me. I have some other issues, but I just find it interesting that when these things backfire and you see the wedding of corporate interests and progressive ideology. I'm old enough to remember when the left used to have bumper stickers attacking corporations and attacking big, big, big business and making anti-heroes of athletic team owners. But – not anymore. Not anymore. It's all progressive now. Commanders. Well, a lot of people are taken to calling them commies for short, evidently. Pat McAfee. Am I saying his name right, Bill? Pat McAfee? McAfee. Pat McAfee. Rebranding is always going to be tough. And I think the Washington Commanders is a name that's going to yield to them being called the commies because they're red in the nation's capital. Nonetheless, fans across social media couldn't help make the same joke. Here's Del Reed. With all the marketing and focus groups that go on with every corporate decision made these days, the fact that the Washington commies didn't raise any red flags is unbelievable. And he, of course, put red flags in quotes. It's actually a fair and maybe the most fair point to think about for a second. No one in those meetings, no one on those calls – None of the consultants did it dawn on, not a one, that they might be called commies. You know why? They don't think that way at all. For the same reason Whitaker Chambers said it was hard to get Democrats in the 50s to denounce communism in America. Because when we started talking about the policies of the communists, they felt uncomfortable They felt uncomfortable because they realized the distinctions and the differences between what they believed and what we said and what the communists said they believed became an increasingly small distance. It just got to be a little too uncomfortable for them. That's what's happened here in Washington, D.C. And now you have the Washington commanders. And as far as I'm concerned... If they ever do anything newsworthy, and it needs mentioning on this show, Bill, you'll help me out and remind me. We'll just call them the Washington Commies. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 after the hour brings us the great John Dombrowski with our culture and economy Update, and I think it's the second day in a row, just by happenstance, stochasticity, that he, John has been introduced with Jimmy Buffett music. Oh Fine by John, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you bet. Let me uh, mention you are the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, your website, grandcanyonplanning.com, and your own radio show, where I don't know if you have Jimmy Buffett music on or not, John. You know, but I don't know either. Yeah, I, I know, right? So Every Saturday yeah. morning at 7 a.m., the word on wealth. we got to look I, into that. If I don't, I'm going to have yeah, it. Yeah, we're going to have future. to start now. Who yes. produces you, Gil? we got to get that going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, have words, I'll have some words with Gil. Uh, I want to 
tie uh, bring up something as a tie over from yesterday. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, talk to me about this stock split that Google announced today. Can oh, you explain okay. what yeah. that means? Yes. Yeah, so actually, it was yesterday when they reported yeah. their earnings, uh, which they uh, beat on the top and the bottom lines, which was uh, good for the stock. And it rallied uh, after hours yesterday and, and through the day today. It was up about 7 or 8 percent. Um, but basically what they did announce, Seth, it's a stock that's very much close to $3,000 per share. So if you wanted to buy one share of Google stock, you'd have to invest $3,000. Well, there's a lot of people out there that may want to own Google, but they maybe can't necessarily afford $3,000 to right. buy one share of stock. Right. So what Google did announce is they announced that they're going to do a 20-for-1 stock split. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Well, they're announcing the split, and they're saying in, it's the first week, I think, in July that it, w- it will split. Okay. And they're saying uh, we're going to do 20-for-1. So whatever the price of the stock is on that day when they do the split, uh, just divide it by 20. So if it's $3,000 for simplicity today, uh, it's going to be $150 a share. Okay. So if you own the stock, let's say you own uh, you know, one share of yeah. the stock and yeah. it, it splits, well, then you're going to own 20 shares of the stock. Uh, and, and So no one who owns the stock that they bought at a higher price is going to be punished. No, if anything. And in fact, it might yeah, be better. It could be better yeah. because now all of a sudden right. the share price is a lot lower and maybe certain people may want to now purchase it. There could be creating additional, additional demand for the stock. However, Google has been purchasing their own stock back over the past uh, couple of years, which again helps improve the value of the stock because there's less shares out there. Uh, the value of the company remains the same. So they've been really uh, doing very well financially and for their investors over a long period of time. And for those in the stock today, uh, they got good news with that. I believe it's good news for the stock. And Amazon's another one that yeah. hasn't done this yet, but they're in the $2,700, uh range of uh, per share. And so sometimes it's difficult for people to buy those stocks. And you're going to own them, though, Seth, if you buy a mutual fund, if you buy yeah, a, sure. uh, you know, an information technology fund, you're going to have Google in there yeah. uh, and other growth type of funds. So you'll own it, in, you know, but not just as an individual stock, but as part of a fund that you may be in, investing in. John, I'm sure there's probably a million and one reasons why companies would think through whether they want to announce a stock split. Mm-hmm. But what's the what would be the chief reason? Because it seems to me it might dilute certain ownership, but maybe not well, because yeah. everything stays constant. It, exactly. Okay. It really doesn't dilute okay. it. But okay. what it does is it does give opportunity for other uh, investors out there now to, to participate in that. And I think – you know, Google, who is a company, of course, that many of the younger generation are really uh, in, you know, utilize it and, and really understand it and like the company. Uh, they really maybe couldn't afford to invest in it in the past unless they had an online platform that allowed fractional shares to be purchased. You know, you some companies will allow you online if you want to buy ten dollars worth of a stock. Doesn't matter the price; uh, they're going to give you a yeah. fractional ownership yeah. in that. Um, but that's not the norm in uh, traditional type of brokerage accounts. Gotcha. You're like me. If I find a word or a phrase I don't know, I can't. I can't sleep that night until I know. And you <laughs> dropped one on me. You know more than I do, and you dropped one on me. Can you help me? Dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost. So averaging. I can sleep tonight. Right. Okay. So just generally speaking, dollar cost averaging, and, and many people utilize this without even realizing it through your 401k contributions. Each pay period, you uh, basically are going to take an investor who's going to invest the same amount of money 
uh, in the same investment. It could be an individual stock. It could be a mutual fund or whatever it may be uh, over a period of time, regardless of the share price. Right. So every pay period, you're going to be investing in that fund. Doesn't matter if the price is higher, lower, whatever it may be, and that gives you an average over the time, right? As stocks drop in value, you're going to be buying at a lower price. If they're up, uh, then you're going to be buying at a higher price, but you're averaging that cost out. And over 20, 30, 40 years of your working career, you'd be amazed at what you can accumulate over time with your contributions and growth. Nice, John. So that is dollar cost averaging. Thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finman Sipic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there. You got it. Thank, Thank you, you, John Dombrowski. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Coming up. <laughs> My bad. Okay. Yeah, we'll have him shortly. Uh, Brett Johnson is our uh, Robert Jackson uh, scholar of constitutional law, and uh, we were firing on a few different pins here. So we'll have him uh, join us in just a moment or two. It was an important Supreme Court decision that uh, came down from the Arizona Supreme Court yesterday on freedom of speech, and it involved a political campaign. Um, And it gets us to a lot of the things that are going on and being spoken about right now, whether it's the White House urging social media platforms to censor what they call misinformation. It goes to what takes place in a campaign and what candidates say. And yesterday in a case involving Wendy Rogers, the Arizona Supreme Court, in an opinion written by uh, Clint Bullock, upheld – Uh, a First Amendment claim against something she said or advertised in a political campaign. Brett Johnson, sorry uh, we had a little technical difficulty. I think we have you now, sir. Yes? And I I was listening to your good rendition of of the cases that have been coming out, so uh, you're doing a good job. Oh, no, I was just tap dancing until we got the technology (laughs) worked out. Let me give you your... Full and official introduction, Brett Johnson, our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies, partner at the law firm of Snell and Wilmer. Uh, talk to me. What did the Arizona Supreme Court and our friend Clint uh, Bullock say yesterday? Yeah, so Clint Bullock, and, and just as a, as a way of background on the case, Wendy Rogers is a state senator here in Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, she was running a congressional campaign, which she did not win eventually on, um, against a, an individual who an individual worked for a modeling company. Um, and uh, uh, Senator Rogers used that um, uh, and basically embellished as part of some of the advertising. And, and obviously the advertising company that the uh, candidate worked for had concerns and, and brought a defamation action against Wendy Rogers. Went through the trial court, went through the Court of Appeals, and then ended up at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said is that the First Amendment is the First Amendment. And when the candidates are out there and they're speaking, they are entitled to kind of almost a higher deference, um, especially in regard to defamation, because of the need to have that public square. And even if it is, 
you know, something that is con- contrary to normal beliefs or is offensive to people, that type of discussion still um, is entitled to First Amendment speech. So that is just one of multiple cases that are kind of going, up, going on across the country that are re- reasserting the First Amendment, especially in, in the challenges to the cancel, cancel culture um, movement that we've seen so much, not only um, in the universities, but government and, un- unfortunately, the judiciary. One of the things I initially thought, and, and I didn't know about this defamation suit, uh, actually, until I heard about the outcome of it last night on the news, Brett, but one of the first things I thought to myself last night was, wasn't all of this settled in New York Times v. Sullivan some time ago, where the court went through pains to say even false statements in political campaigns should be given First Amendment protection? Absolutely, and that's obviously one of the cases that uh, was a major discussion point, let's put it that way, by by all of the courts that considered the issue. This was a little bit different, though. So when you put yourself out in the public domain, you're, you're number one, a news person like yourself, um, or you're a political official, or even a judge, um, people are able to say things against you that are that, that are basically untrue and there's a higher standard and that's right. what uh, um, was the difference here this was the advertising agency company not in the public figure obviously the company is not running running in an election and it showed economic harm based off of the comments of one of um, of a candidate against one of its employees who also happened to be running so it was a third party so it was trying to use more of a baseline where you know a name neighbor um, defames you or you you're, you're both private individuals, and now you've been hurt economically. And what the Supreme Court basically said is, no, um, even in those cases, even though when those people did not insert themselves into the public square, there is still that heightened level um, of, of uh, First First Amendment protections when it's dealing with political campaigning. There is a uh, there is an interesting little tidbit, and it's mentioned in every story I've read about this. That said uh, that there was another judge sitting in on behalf of another friend of ours, Bill Montgomery. Was he, did he have to recuse himself because of relationships or something like that? Yes, I believe so. You, okay. As a judge or a justice in this yeah. case, you don't have to say why you're recusing okay. yourself. You just recuse. And yeah. that uh, got kicked to Judge Espinoza, who yeah. was in the, the minority. Uh-huh. And very rare, and again, I mentioned that last week about the U.S. Supreme Court, right. it's very rare to have split decisions right. at any court level. Yep. Um, and this was a 4-3 decision. The three uh, dissenters came out pretty strongly against the majority um, and saying that, no, that, that this, this went too far, this language went too far, and and uh, Wendy Rogers needed to be held accountable um, by damages. Gotcha. There's a lot of this going on right now, Brett. Oh, well, before I before I segue to that, just just kind yeah. of a, a question, and I and I, it's actually a serious one, although you might laugh at it. But the more you appear on this show, do you get put into that category of of, of persons people could more easily say defamatory things against? <laughs> I, I think so. Plus the type of cases that I do, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've accepted the cases. The more high profile you are, the more, yeah. Yeah. Which which goes to uh, one of the major issues about cancel culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, when judges or lawyers they step up and they take some of the big cases, um, now they have inserted themselves into the um, the public domain and are probably so that's probably why I don't listen to social media very often. Although Heather does. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> social that, media uh, by proxy, we call it. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. I look over her shoulder. Yes. Uh, but it, it 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 is a very important issue, and this is why. It's so we discussed the 
First Amendment, uh-huh. had, and it is the First Amendment, right? It, yep. it's, it says the most important of all of the Bill of Rights because of the importance of being able to speak your mind. And the concept of, of cancel culture in both the judiciary and political campaigning is, is, a, is a real issue that people are struggling with. Um, and But you see some courts, especially the federal courts, and they have the luxury of lifetime appointment, really stepping up and, and uh, um, opining that, hey, you, you uh, especially if you're a governmental authority, you've gone too far in trying to cancel um, different types of speech. Brett, this is now affecting the legal profession in a way I never imagined. That we started. Do you have time to do one more brief, brief segment sure. on this? If I hold you Absolutely. over the break, could you yeah, do that yeah, with yeah. us? Yep. Th- that would be ideal because of our anyway. My fault, and we'll come right back to you on this question. I'll pose it to you this way, Brett. Uh, growing up, as everyone knows, a lot of prominent criminal defense attorneys have been criticized over the years for representing – you'd represent that guy? Come on. How can you represent that guy? But no one ever said they didn't have a right to or that it should be the policy of a firm not to let a criminal defense attorney represent someone. We're now seeing this with First Amendment and political things, aren't we? Can we talk about that where firms are being pressured not to represent certain clients outside of the criminal field? I'd like to pick that up. With you on the other side of this, we'll be right back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brett Johnson. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brett Johnson, partner at Snell and Wilmer, checks in with us every week on constitutional legal issues. Brett, as we were setting up right before the break, uh, something I have never seen before. Growing up, I was always thought I always thought that at- attorneys were a, a little better versed and a little more respectful of First Amendment issues. I don't know if that's actually true anymore. I was talking to a friend who works for a big firm in New York, uh, and, and I said, you know, do you guys ever run into the problems of, you know, the Trump organization wanting your representation and you can't do it? He said, we're actually one of the few firms that do represent the Trump organization, but you'd be amazed how many firms turn down that business for us. Some of them probably not volitionally, but due to internal pressure. And it doesn't just have to be the Trump organization or Trump, right, as a possible client. There's been a lot of pressure on firms not to represent a lot of people and entities based on politics and civil actions, no? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, especially on the on on some of the tough cases. And I was actually talking to a friend this weekend, uh, Joe Riley, a big listener of your show, by the way. So oh. shout out to him. Yes, sir. Uh, we, we we talked about some of, of these issues, especially the First Amendment. And and when you talk about uh, the firms, it has become a big big issue. And you actually saw this in the last um, election with law firms, large law firms, um, who who were targeted by various groups for boycotts, et cetera, for representing the president of the United States. Now, I got to tell you, you know, as as a practitioner, when you're able to represent folks of that nature, yeah. so long as it has merit, right? Yeah. You always, as a lawyer, you, you're following your ethical obligations. It has to have merit. Sure. There has to be a legal claim. Sure. Um, you, you obviously take that case. There's, there's, there's very few, few times, but there has been this now cancel culture that it's okay to take cases um, that were are maybe more on the liberal or progressive side. Because if you don't take those cases, you're actually going to be doubly canceled, right? Right. right. Because and then and then you're canceled the other way because you decide to take those cases that are that are kind of hard and and in between. And what I actually love to point out, um, there's there's two people. One on that issue is Paul Clement, probably the 
a former solicitor general, still a very uh, um, significant one of the more respected lawyers in town, for sure. Argued argued over a hundred Supreme Court cases, for that matter. And and he was at a very large law firm, and that large and the large law firm said, "You cannot take this unpopular Mm. political matter Mm. to the Supreme Court." And he left the law firm, Mm. so it was very very good. And I remember Chief Justice Roberts when Chief Justice Roberts was getting confirmed. He was asked, um, pointed to saying, you know, you, you put down that you helped on this appeal dealing mm-hmm. with a left issue. Mm-hmm. And his response was perfect, which is like, just because I helped with a, a matter does not mean that's part of my philosophical beliefs, but I am there to help the development of the law. Yeah. And, that, and that is something that we've kind of gotten away from. Quite honestly, because of social media and yep. some of the pressures of corporate America yep. of, of where things are. But you're seeing the judiciary, especially the federal judiciary, kind of pushing back on that. Good. And hopefully, as, um, as Judge Amul Thapar, who's a, who's a Sixth Circuit uh, jurist, um, and uh, he has, has been very vocal in this area about protecting the First Amendment speech and not having to be, especially when governmental actions involved, of pushing back in that context. Good. We're going to do a lot more on this in weeks yes. to come. Brett Johnson, bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.